Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Imelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Emelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come back with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn my back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. We are starting the book of Ruth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who likes the book of Ruth? Who doesn't like the book of Ruth? Now's your chance to say you hate a book in the Bible. No? Okay. Who feels like they don't know anything about the book of Ruth? 
Okay, cool. All right, we got a couple of people. Who is grateful that we're done the book of Romans and get to move on to something else? Hey, all right, cool. All right, so the book of Ruth. Um, the book of Ruth is a wonderful little story. It's the story of an Israelite woman named Naomi, and she and her husband, Elimelech, live in Bethlehem, the famous Bethlehem, the town where David's from and eventually Jesus is born in. And during a famine in Israel, Ruth and Elimelech and their two children become refugees in the land of Moab. And while they're there, her son married two Moabite women. And who knows the names of these Moabite women? We just got to read them. Yeah. Orpah and Ruth. For what it's worth, fun fact, apparently Oprah's parents planned to name her Orpah, and it got mixed up on the birth certificate. So that is where the name Oprah comes from. At least I've heard that. I've never factored that. Anyway. So, but within the first happens, first five verse, what happens to Naomi's uh, husband and sons? They die. Like, you know, we're very Shakespearean here, right? Like everyone dies right away. I guess in Shakespeare, it usually happens at the end, but everyone dies. And Naomi is left, in her own words, empty and bitter. And this is what she says about that situation. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. It's hard to know whether to take Naomi seriously, right? I mean, she says, stop calling me Naomi, which means pleasant. And she says, stop, start calling me Mara, which means bitter. It's a little bit like if Rosie came to me and said, no longer call me Rosie. Call me Death Blossom. <laughs> So it's a little bit dramatic, right? It's a little bit intense. Like, hey, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Pleasant anymore. Call me Bitter. Don't call me Rosie. Call me Death Blossom. But Naomi's not entirely wrong, right? Without a husband or sons in the ancient world, she is left empty. She has no security, no future, no means to recover. Um, there's, there's not a lot to look forward to. And all she has left are these two Moabite daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orba. And so, since we're starting off the book of Ruth, we have to ask, what's a, what's a Moabite? Who knows anything about Moabites? Moab. They're from Moab. All right. Yes. Scotty takes the easy one. Lot. Yes. Yeah. Good job. Paul gets 500 points. Um, according to, if you read Genesis 19, it tells the story of Lot after he leaves Sodom and Gomorrah. His daughters decide to sleep with him in order to have children and continue on their line. So it's fair to say Israelites did not think highly of Moabites, right? If this is the origin story that you've collected and remembered, these are not people you think favorably of. And this hostility only increased when Israel came out of Egypt in uh, the Exodus. You can read about it in Numbers 22. And what happens is when Israel comes out of Egypt and comes into the land, they go around that way. And Moab, instead of greeting them, kind of as their ancient cousins, uh, refuses to let them pass through the land. Ultimately, the king hires a seer named Balaam to try and curse them and destroy them. And then they ultimately send the, uh, they try and seduce them and get them to commit idolatry. And the result of this is that what uh, is said in Deuteronomy 23, 3 to 6. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. 
And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor, and Aram Naharam to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. They're pretty harsh, right? It's fair to say that if you walked around ancient Israel and asked them what they thought of Moabites, what do you think they would have said? Probably pretty negative stuff, right? Those dirty, smelly goat herders, don't you know they were born of incest? Don't let them in the temple. Better yet, it's probably good we just keep them out of Israel altogether. It's important to know for a story, but Moabites are those people. Do you know what I mean by that? Every generation has a those people. You probably grew up with a particular group that was called those people, the people you don't really want moving into your community, the people who don't fit in ethnically or religiously. I mean, I don't mean to be too provocative, but they're, you know, they're, they're foreigners in the same way. In every generation, people look at them with suspicion and say, we don't want those folks here. And yet, who's the protagonist of our story? Ruth, a Moabite. God is writing a grand salvation story in the middle of it. The hero of this particular chapter is one of those people. A Moabite. We kind of lose the biting edge of that, in our, and you know, after all these years. But you, but we need to think about that. Whoever you think about is that like outside group, that foreign group, that group that feels like a threat. That's who Ruth is. And Ruth will stick to Naomi, even when Naomi loses her faith. Ruth will care for Naomi, even at great risk to herself. Ruth will follow the God of Israel, even though it means leaving everything behind. And in the end, what we find out is Ruth is actually the great-grandmother of David. When we get to the end of our story, it gives us this genealogy. Solomon is the father of Boaz. Boaz, a.k.a. Ruth's husband. Boaz is the father of Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David. God will use Ruth, a Moabite, to bring about the great Messiah king of Israel. And of course, in bringing forth David, Ruth is also the mother of Christ, right? Just as Christ is both the descendant and the fulfillment of David, God uses a Moabite to bring us our Savior. Amen? So if nothing else, the book of Ruth should push us in our view of those people. God has the habit of using them. The people we think are the enemies of God, God tends to like them and sometimes employ them in really critical places. And likewise, if you've ever been included in those people, if you've ever felt that, that exclusion, know that you might be in a pretty good place to be used by God. So whoever are the Moabites to you, Ruth, first and foremost, is a calling to believe that God can use them, that God doesn't just love them, but God can actually use them and make them central to his story. Amen. As we dive into Ruth, also just some fast facts about this, this book. I want to give you a little bit of information about it. First of all, Ruth, who wrote the book of Ruth? The simple answer? Nobody knows. 
There are no real great clues here. You can read quite a bit about this, but there's not really any certainty. Nobody says that they wrote it. Nobody really claims anything. So um, we do not know who wrote the book of Ruth. When was the book written? Well, the book itself tells us that it takes place in the time of the judges, but it actually appears to be written much later. It's written back in a backward looking fashion. Some think it was written during the time of David uh, because, you know, Ruth is the ancestor of David, maybe to explain, you know, David's curious ancestry of like David has this Moabite link in his ancestry. And where did that come from? And who is that? How do we explain that? Some people think the book was actually written much later. If you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, when Israel comes back from exile, there's this uh, controversy over intermarriage and whether it's okay for Israelites to marry those who are not ethnically Jewish. And some people think Ruth was written to kind of be a, a counter voice to that. And then likewise, some people think it's actually very late. And around 250 uh, BC is when Greeks start joining up with Judaism. And they think Ruth was potentially written to kind of say, no, actually, look, there's always been non-ethnic Jewish people who have come into the family of God, who have come into the story of God. But the simple answer is, when was Ruth written? Nobody knows. And this is, of course, why you all pay me the big bucks to read all those books and everything. So I can tell you this, nobody knows when this book was written or why it was written or who wrote it. But what I think is most interesting about the book of Ruth is where it sits in the Bible. If you read the Old Testament, it's the story of a nation being called out to reflect the kingdom of God, to be different, right? This starts with Abraham. God calls one person and says, I'm going to make you into a nation. And through you and through your descendants, all the nations of, world, of the world are going to be blessed. You will be different. You will be special. You will reflect the kingdom of God on earth. As we continue reading, we read the story of Moses when people come out of Egypt and Moses gives them the law. And so we're to say, here is a way to live differently. And this calling is refined in Numbers and Joshua as the people learn to be the people of God and to live differently in the land. And then what book comes right before Ruth? Right after Joshua. Judges. Who likes the book of Judges? Probably the most colorful book in the Old Testament. If you read the book of Judges, it's the story of Israel falling apart. I mean, the first, the first couple of judges aren't so bad. You have uh, Othniel and Deborah and Gideon who do some pretty good stuff for Israel. And then you get to Samson, right, who makes great, like, great children's stories. But, I mean, he's a, he's a murderous, adulterous arsonist. And that's who's leading Israel. And then we have the story of Micah right after that, one we probably might not remember, this wealthy Israelite who builds his own temple and hires his own priests and sets up his own kind of like pseudo-Judaism. And when we get further into the book, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse until we get to the final story. Does anybody know what the final story in the book of Judges is? The Levite's concubine, not a story you learned in Sunday school. If you don't know this story, it's the story of an Israelite priest who's a Levite who sets out on a journey with his concubine. And as darkness sets in, they decide they don't want to stay in a Canaanite town, right? Because they don't want to be abused by these foreigners, by these awful people who live amongst us. So they decide to go on to the Israeli town of Gibeah. But when they get there, no one takes them in. 
And they sit in the town square, which of course is a major sin in the ancient world, a major sin in hospitality culture. But finally, an old man comes along and he takes them into his home and they settle into the home. And then this is what happens. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Yeah. So does this remind anyone of a more famous biblical account? Incident? Sodom and Gomorrah. That's right. And that should remind us of that because that's what the book of Judges is telling us is that's how far Israel has fallen. They have become Sodom and Gomorrah. The very people who were supposed to come into the land and be different have actually become worse than the epitome of bad in the land. And after this happens, you actually find one of the worst acts you'll, in the entire Bible. The old man and the priest, in an act of just utter cowardice, send the priest's concubine out to the mob, and she is raped and killed by the mob. And the Levite takes her body, and he cuts it into 12 pieces and sends them to the 12 tribes of Israel. And the result is this civil war where the tribe of Benjamin is nearly cut off from the people of Israel. And the only way the tribe of Benjamin continues to exist is not by some righteous means, but by, by going to a festival of the Lord and kidnapping all the women in mass so that they can replenish their family line. Like it's, it's, it's horrible. I mean, I've read this before and I read it again this week and I was like, this is a horrible, horrible story. And again, this is the people who were called to be different, to be holy, to be righteous before God. Judges 21-25, the last verse in the book, ends with its familiar refrain. It says, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Israel had essentially resigned its calling. The story should be done by any system of justice. God should wipe them out. And yet, if you keep reading, flip the page, one page over, what's the next thing that happens in the Bible? The book of Ruth. Even as Israel is throwing away its calling and pissing on its blessings, what's God up to? God is sending Ruth to redeem Naomi, to restore her faith, and to bring about a king. In the days of Israel, in these days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. But Ruth tells us that actually God is already at work to bring about a king. And not just any king, right? To bring about David, the restorer of Israel, the precursor to Christ. Even as Israel is falling apart, Ruth tells us God is already at work to bring about its restoration. The good news of Ruth is this, that God does not abandon his children, even when they are at their worst. Amen. God does not abandon his children, even when they are at their worst. Have you experienced that? I mean, I, I don't tend to be much of a Calvinist, but the Israel judges is not worth saving. Like, they're really not. It's really bad. They're vile, horrid, violent, and oppressive. But rather than leaving them behind, God sends David 
to restore the nation. And in our smaller version of this, we see Naomi, who is lost and broken and hopeless. She's in, she's in death blossom mode, right? <laughs> Again, like she is done. She's, she's, she's given up on hope. And God doesn't say, get over it. God sends Ruth to care for her, to love her, to restore her hope, to bring her back to life. In both cases, when the children of God had hit rock bottom, God sends salvation rather than condemnation. And that's profound. Whether it's sin or despair, God does not abandon his children, but sends salvation. And I think it's kind of neat. There's like a near salvation and a far salvation to this story of the of like sometimes salvation is right next to us, right? Like Naomi is, is hopeless and she doesn't, she says that she is empty and she doesn't realize that Ruth is next to her that whole time and that God will use Ruth to bring her back to life. And God does that, right? In our places of despair and our places of loneliness, sometimes we don't realize that God is actually working right next to us. But there's also this, this far salvation, this big picture that even in the most hopeless situations, David will come. Christ will come. God will come. God is already on it. So you don't need to fall apart because God will show up. Amen. I found myself struggling to write this this week, honestly, because I read that story again and I hate Israel and I kind of wish God crushes them. And this is where I have to do that thing where I, I remind myself that I am part of that story too that I too am worthy of this condemnation, that I have this vileness within me. And yet God sends salvation. That should humble us. That should challenge us. That should make us want to repent. That should make us realize how scandalous the cross truly is, that this is what Jesus did, right? He doesn't take on these small trifling sins. He takes on all, the worst of it. The book of Ruth is profound because into this hopelessness, God does not send condemnation. God sends salvation. And it challenges us to say, like Naomi, can we receive it? Can we receive so great a salvation? Even at their worst, God does not abandon his children, but sends salvation. Amen. Amen. That's the powerful story of Ruth. And lastly, into this hopelessness, Ruth is also a calling. Ruth is kind of a fascinating character in the, in the canon of scripture. Ruth is, in some ways, the widow and the refugee, and the care that she receives is a calling for us to do the same to those who are widows and refugees. Ruth is also the heir of Abraham, right? She reflects Abraham, the one who leaves her land, who leaves her people, who leaves it all behind to follow God. And just as Abraham is reckoned as righteous for this, as we just read about in Romans, so should Ruth be too. Ruth is Levi, the tax collector, the one who leaves everything behind at the calling of God without looking back. But you know the weirdest role that Ruth plays in this story? Ruth is God. And I don't mean that in a sacrilegious way. I mean that in the sense that, that God uses her to be his presence. Naomi is Israel. Naomi is the lost sheep. She is the one who is wandering off in hopelessness. And you know what Ruth says to her? This famous speech that Ruth gives her says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people might be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. 
And this language that she's using, it's covenant language, is actually closest to the, the promise that God gives to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to say, I will be with you no matter what. I will stick by you no matter what. Ruth is the covenant of God to Naomi in this place. Naomi says, leave me behind. My life is over. My life is worthless. You have nothing to gain from me. But Ruth chooses faithfulness over love. And through this faithfulness and love, she brings Naomi back to life. So Ruth 1 is a reminder to us, just as we're all kind of Naomi in some ways, we also probably all know a Naomi. Does everybody like know a Naomi? Someone who just is broken? What would it look like to be Ruth to that person? To say, yeah, you're right. Everything's pretty messed up. I should probably bail. But guess what? I'm not going to. I am in it with you no matter what. I was thinking, like, what if that were the motto of our church, right? I am in it with you no matter what. Can you imagine? That's a community I would join in a second. Ruth sticks by Naomi, even when there's no good reason to, even when she doesn't deserve it, even in her hopelessness. And in doing so, she gets to see her come back to life. And lastly, Orpah. I get to close on the Orpah. Naomi tells Orpah to go back to Moab, and she does. And she's not wrong, right? There's nothing wrong in what Orpah does. She's smart. She probably sizes it up the same way uh, Naomi does, and it makes sense. She goes back, and then she's even listening to Naomi. This is what Naomi tells her to do. But I came across this quote this week, and it kind of struck my imagination. Orpah does what is sensible and right, but Ruth has a wider imagination and a deeper love. And it just made me think that in some ways, Ruth is Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount, right? Saying, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, love, uh, turn the other cheek and love your enemies. Orpah does what is sensible and right. And Ruth does what is gracious and extravagant. Orpah is the law. Ruth is the extravagant love and grace of God. Orpah's not wrong, but a lot of times we settle for being Orpah. And I think this passage calls us to say, what would it look like to be Ruth? When we see hopelessness to not meet it with practicality, but with a wider imagination and a deeper love. I'm not saying we have no boundaries and, you know, like we just, we don't, we aren't wise, right? I mean, that's not, I don't want us to get there to where we just feel so guilty that we're not there for everybody all the time. But instead to put on some of that Jesus imagination, to say, what would it look like to be people of love to those who are in hopelessness? Because the orphans of the world do it right, but the roots of the world get to see the dead raised back to life. I truly believe that. And so if you want to see God work, if you want to see salvation come, if you want to see the dead raised back to life, honestly, I think there's a calling in this. Put aside that orpa part of yourself that needs to keep everything responsible. And go be Ruth. Love someone in a stupid way. Love someone who is hopeless and love them in a way they do not deserve. In the face of sin and despair, put on a wider imagination and a deeper love and see what happens.
at the very least, it won't be boring. I can guarantee that. And at best, I think he just might see salvation come. Amen. So Ruth is the story of grace. It's the story of God seeing Israel in hopelessness and sending David. It's the story of God seeing Naomi in despair and sending Ruth. It's the story of Ruth, the one who's been gripped by grace and lives it out. And it's a calling to us. Can we receive this radical grace? Can we let it change us? Can we go and live it out and give it away to those around us? If we do, we will see salvation come. We will see Naomi come back to life. We will see the dead raised to life. Amen. Amen. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.